This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. It's two minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning. My name's Bron Burton. And good morning to you, Bron. My name's Dr Beach, as you know. Yeah. It's been a while, Dr Beach. It has been. Well, it's Radiothon, I suppose. Well, Radiothon, yeah, yeah. But it's nice to see you back at the back at the bench. Yeah. Regularly. <laughs> Off the bench. Off the bench. Back, back on the on, ground. Back on the ground. Yeah, yeah, off the bench. But, well, bench, I think of benches and, you know, the workbench. Yeah. Out in the garage. Indeed. Hey, um, thank you very much, Tim <coughs> and uh, Namilla and Andrew, all live in studio this morning. It was a beautiful How thing. How fab. Yeah. Indeed. Um, do we talk about the football very briefly? Well, we could. I mean, I'm pretty happy. I'm looking forward to going to – well, I'm not going to Perth, but my team's going to Perth next week. I've just realised how many people I know who are Melbourne supporters and they're all really nice people and you, you're all just smashing <laughs> the stereotype. <laughs> I don't know. I, I went to um, the MCC on Friday night and the stereotype was there in full force. Oh, was it? I felt like, I don't know <laughs> if I want to be part of this group. <laughs> Maybe there's this kind of polarised thing where you're, kind I, of, you're very much on one side. In the side outer it's the all right, other. but um, elsewhere it's a bit sort of stereotypical for me. Yeah, right. For my liking. And I'm from within that, so... I can say that, I think. Okay. But, yet, yes, Bron, I'm very excited. I think it's great. Yeah. I was telling somebody the last, last final, I went to a final Friday night, last final I went to was the 1977 Grand, the first one between North and Collingwood. That yes. was a long time ago. Wow. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully you'll get your chance. Yep. 
Go D's. Demons are the um, the Tigers from last year and Footscray from the year before. <laughs> Everyone I am speaking to wants the D's to get up. So Even the Tigers fans? I don't think so. Oh, well, apart from Tigers fans, yeah, yeah. of course. Apart and, from Kent. And, and Collingwood. Or <laughs> <laughs> Collingwood fans. God, yeah, it was a bit feral last night. So, you know, like, yes, and when I say everyone I know, not everyone I know. Anyway, it's not football. This is um, no, this is mar- this is this is the marine world. This is this yeah. It's not sport sporting world or <laughs> world of sport. World of sport is it? Yeah, world of sport. All right. So coming up very shortly, we're going to be joined on the phone by Heidi Taylor. Heidi is the director of Tangaroa Blue. She has been on our program before, but not for a few years. Uh, last year, they came to Melbourne. They being Tangaroa Blue, and ran some workshops on litter reduction strategies with various councils around Port Phillip Bay. And they were such a smashing success. They're doing it all again. Uh, those workshops are taking place over the next two weeks. So Heidi's going to talk to us about the workshops, about the Australian Marine Debris Initiative, which I think oversees a lot of what uh, oversees underpins a lot of what Tangaroa Blue does. And also, they've got a new data collection app. So we're going to talk to Heidi. Heidi about that I'm too. very excited that we're talking to Heidi about Tangaroa Blue. Mm. They do a fantastic job around this fair country and um, they've been more active. I guess that, well, like, we can talk to Heidi about this, but like Queensland, WA, I gather they kind of started and then they've been trying to get other people involved in with what they do. And they have done extremely successfully. So, yeah, really, really great example of something that can start out very small and then become very big. Yeah, and I'm also excited that um, later on in the show at around 9.30 we've got two students coming in, as we sometimes do, two law science undergraduate students who are going to tell us about dredging and some legislation which is about to go to State Parliament. That is Ram and Lewis. So we look forward to hearing from Ram and Lewis. Mm. I might be a bit scared. We, I don't think we've had law students in the studio before. Oh, they're pretty tame. <laughs> I've, I've met them briefly. I've, I've met them on the tram on the way up here. And they said, um, oh, can we come in? So, yeah, that's, <laughs> our, our, we've known each other for about 10 minutes at least. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's great. We're really looking forward to having them in. And we've got some um, – you've got some marine science. I've got some news. There's been some stuff going on. I've got some science too, actually. Have you? Stepping on your turf. <clears throat> Well, that's not my turf. You could, come on, you're, you're a card-carrying scientist. What are you talking about, Dr Burton? But, you know, this is your thing. Yeah, I shared a load. Dr. Shared a load. I, I will. I will. Some very interesting research coming out of CSIRO about uh, adaptation of um, deep sea... Uh, well, actually not deep sea fish, but fish that are actually heading down to the deep and some questions around whether or not it might be a... Um, Mesopelagic fish. I th- yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to hold off on this while I Google mesopelagic. (laughs) They're in the middle there. Yeah, they are. (laughs) So these are fish that are normally shallow dwelling and they've been spotted in much deeper waters uh, where they've never really been seen before. So there's questions around whether they're heading down to get into cooler waters. It's actually more about getting away from from potential sea temperatures warming up. Mm, Very interesting. I look forward to hearing about that. Yeah. Some, Some science from Dr Burton. We've got a giveaway as well. I think we might hold off on that. That looks very exciting. We'll hold off on that. Oh, that's just, you've just been teasing now. Yeah. I'm trying to get people to keep listening. Yeah. All right, let's have uh, a, a bit of a weather forecast, if you please. It's Dr. nice Mitch. and sunny out there. Boy, it was cold yesterday. Oh. Headed back down there. It was bloody miserable. Um, but you know, nice for a change. I was thinking like springs, maybe springs here a bit early. I don't know, but so back to winter yesterday. It was today, snowing in Trentham, I saw on the social media. Snowing in Trentham. On the socials. Yeah, on the socials. Okay. Uh, minimum of five this morning, 13 degrees today. It's pretty sunny out there at the moment. We've got it, but we do have a high chance of showers in the southeastern suburbs, medium chance elsewhere. Snow possible 
above 600 metres in the early morning. Possible hail in the southeastern suburbs in early morning winds west 20 to 30 kilometres per hour. Uh, looking ahead tomorrow, 18 degrees, partly cloudy. Uh, Tuesday back up to 21. Wednesday, bang, back down to 15 with a shower or two, 16, 18 later on in the week. So a little bit variable with not much rain, just little sprinklings, oh, perhaps on Thursday, getting up to five millimetres. If you're heading out on the water, you'll be interested with what the tides are doing. Uh, Point Lonsdale, that is the heads. We have low tide at one minute after 10 a.m. this morning. And um, strong swells, gusty west winds and confining the best waves to the surf coast this morning, says Swellnet. I don't know what Dr Surf would have to say about that, but anyway, <laughs> paper's telling me to head to the west coast. I don't have a board, so out there, if you've got a board, go to the west coast. There's the surf report. There's the, there's the detailed surf report from somebody who knows zero about <laughs> surf. I'm going to do a very couple of quick news uh, bits and pieces. Actually, I might just do one, then we'll do another one a little bit later on. This was um, from a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you caught in the press, Dr. Beach, because I know this one is of extremely high interest to you, as it is to everyone, really. Um, Queensland government prosecuting Adani. Have you heard about this? Um, I, I missed it. So this goes back to uh, March last year, 2017, during Cyclone Debbie. And uh, Adani Company, uh, had they actually managed to get uh, a, a short-term permission to discharge some suspended sediment during Cyclone Debbie. So their permission um, by the Queensland government was to release 100 milligrams per litre, but they released over 800 milligrams per litre. So um, more than eight, eight times. times. More. Yes. So um, the Queensland Department of Environment and Heritage Protection have fined the company. Guess how much they fined them? <laughs> Thousand bucks. Not much more. $12,190. I looked at that and thought there's got to be some zeros missing off that, but no. And <laughs> then it gets worse. Adani have challenged the fine. Oh. <laughs> Even though it's actually in their own report that they discharged 806 milligrams per litre of uh, suspended sediment, which is effectively coal, straight into the reef. So they're now being prosecuted. So let's let's see what comes off that. But let's hope they can pay the thirteen thousand dollars. I know, not even that. It's not even close. Just just over twelve thousand. Uh, <laughs> so AMCF, AMCS have put out. So this was sus suspended sediment from, like, doing a little bit of dredging. They have a point or no? Wasn't it because it's sorry? Hello. Uh, wasn't it because Hi, of the floods? <laughs> there were floods, and they had to release. I think the story. The it story was, was that they got the application in, but yes. then they then they said, "Oh, we forgot to cover this other area," uh, and sort of tried to put a quick. Can you can you upgrade it at four o'clock in the afternoon or whatever? Can, right. you, can you fix it like now? And it's like no. Right. <laughs> so they okay. just did it anyway. No, so they did it anyway. Yes. What well, was going to? I think it was kind of going to happen anyway, but it's like, dudes, really. Mm -hmm. Another bit of news I did. You reminded me. I did say during the week um, was that the um, Icelandic prime minister. They have a new prime minister. A woman who's trying to ban whaling in Iceland. Right. I forget that. No, I think that came through in an email from Avaz. I've got some IWC news, but I might hold off on that too, I think, because we've got Heidi waiting for us to talk Let's about... Let's not keep Heidi waiting. No, she's actually about to get on a plane, so I really do have to call her. But we'll pick up on that because I have got some news. Um, International Whaling Commission has been meeting this week in Brazil, so perfect opportunity to talk about that a little bit further on. All right, it is... Uh, 
11 minutes past nine. You are listening to Radio Marinara. We're going to play a track which actually brought in for Radiothon and then I brought it in last week as well. And uh, this one is for all of you out there who subscribe to Triple R and uh, our, our tribute to the wonderful um, and now late Aretha Franklin. So I hope you enjoy this. How deep is the ocean? This is Wayne Lynch and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Indeed you are. Thank you, Wayne Lynch. It is 16 minutes past nine and, yes, you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Now, last year, Australia's Tangaroa Blue Foundation coordinated source reduction plan workshops in seven council regions around Port Phillip Bay. At these workshops, passionate workshop participants learned about state, national and international issues of marine debris, where management trends are heading and had a good opportunity to work together on coming up with potential solutions. Well, here's some good news. Tangaroa Blue are coming back to Melbourne and over the next couple of weeks, they'll be running another series of workshops on litter reduction initiatives in several councils around Port Phillip Bay. To tell us more, we welcome from Tangaroa Blue Director Heidi Taylor. Good morning, Heidi. Welcome back to Radio Marinara. Good morning. Thanks very much. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. We're aware that you have to um, run off to the airport and catch a plane, so we will get right into it. Um, Thought we might start for our listeners who haven't come across Tangaroa Blue before. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So Tangaroa Blue is a registered charity. We were formed back in 2004 in the southwest corner of WA. And uh, since then we've expanded and now we coordinate a program called the Australian Marine Debris Initiative. Um, And that is basically a network of community, industry and government all working on ways to remove plastic pollution and marine debris from our environment. But more importantly, how to actually stop it at the source and prevent it from entering the environment in the first place. So we work with communities uh, across the country. and just try and find these strategies that are really relevant to the local community in in how to reduce litter and waste. It's an amazing uh, and enormously challenging thing that you've undertaken. And before, um, you wouldn't have heard us, we were we were talking about when you began as, as quite a small organisation. Did you ever have any idea that you would get to this point of being sort of flying all around the country and delivering these sorts of workshops? No, never in a million years would we have thought that so many people had would connect with this approach. And um, and I think that that's probably why it's been able to grow because it did start as a very small organisation and a small project and it was able to trial stuff and, you know, amend stuff and grow. And, um, and from there, it, people just really wanted to get involved because they could see the value in trying to stop it at the source. So maybe one day we don't need to go out and collect other people's rubbish. Mm. Heidi, it's Dr Beach here. How are you going? Good, thanks. Good morning. Um, I was up in the Gladstone region about a month ago and I was speaking to somebody up there called Jodie Jones who runs the Tangaroa Blue and I was amazed. It it sort of got me thinking about Tangaroa Blue and looking at it on the website and you mentioned before it started off in WA but now indeed it's all around the country. It's amazing. I mean like from WA to the other opposite end of the country up in the Gladstone region, it's, it's, it's amazing how much traction you have had in the past 15 years or so. 
It is, and I guess one of the, the things that we've been really able to show is that when we look at the effort that's happening on the ground all across the country, people are really connected with the coast, but the data that they're collecting through their cleanup activities show us that regionally there's some really big differences in what's impacting their environment. So the data from Cape York is very different to Port Phillip Bay, um, and, and that's what we really need is that data and that evidence so we know where to start for these solutions. Um, the workshops that you ran last year, Heidi, there were five councils that took part. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What, how did those workshops go? What did you actually cover? Yeah, so we, we started off initially with actually seven workshops and we added another four council areas um, early this year. And so the idea was to try and bring everybody into the room who was working on this issue, find out what effort is actually occurring and if there was some data being collected, what it was, and use that to identify what were the main issues that were impacting the environment and then start to look at what are the things that a local community could address. So there's some items that we find in the environment that should be either tackled at a state or a federal or an international level, but there's a lot of things that local communities can do and it was about identifying those items and the community selecting one item that they would then start to implement a project and, and see if they could start to reduce that from ending up in the environment. How was that process, actually drilling down and actually selecting one issue? Was it difficult or did you find most people were on the same page? Um, we, we normally got three or four items and then when we started to kind of look at them in achievability and time frames, um, we were able to, to normally pick either one or two that, that were probably the easiest ones to tackle first. And it's not to say that those other items were less important, um, but I think it's important for the community when they start to work together because we had industry members, we had government members and we had community members. When we start to bring a network together, it's important that um, people learn how to work together. And if we tackle something a little bit easier to start with, then it, it brings together a good platform to tackle something a little bit more difficult in the future. Heidi, can you give us an example of one item that was selected by a community to, to deal with? Yeah, so in the city of Port Phillip, they decided that they wanted to tackle single-use plastic straws. And from there, they were able to engage um, three cafes as a trial to take out plastic straws and replace them with a paper version. Um, and just to trial with their customers what the feedback would be. And so we were able to provide um, some seed funding, which was through the Sustainability Victoria grant. So the um, community group was able to buy some paper straws and give them to these cafes and trial them. And what we found after the, the project was that um, all of those cafes actually stayed using paper straws and another 15 cafes actually joined on. So they were able to reduce all of these plastic straws from actually being used in the first place, which is, is what we mean by stopping at the source. And, and I can imagine that at the other end of the country, I'm thinking of things that one might want to be able to stop at the source, but you're completely powerless to do that and that is something like ghost nets up in the north of the country which must be we've all seen images of turtles stranded and dying and it's it's so so upsetting how how is that kind of thing tackled in the north of the country so when we go up to the north, the majority of the stuff is coming from offshore sources. And so that's what I mean about tackling items at the right level. Yeah. So working with the federal government, working with an international platform, the UN has a has 17 sustainable development goals at the moment um, and, and the, all the international countries are connected to those. So that's where we start to have um, conversations about how do we um, stop 
you know, international items. The data is vital to enable those conversations to happen, but it's very difficult for a local um, community group in, in the middle of Cape York to tackle an Indonesian, you know, fishing uh, net. So it, it's about really connecting the item with the relevant stakeholders and providing them the evidence they need to have that, that discussion. Yeah, that's right, Heidi. And it, it's we can't do everything at once. And I think that's about really honing in on what we can do and, and really concentrating some efforts and starting to knock some things over and then move on to the next thing. And we're, we're sort of, we, I, I kind of feel we're moving in the right direction in incremental, you know, in, in, at an incremental level, but, uh, and then continuing to build from there. Um, well, just wanted to turn our attentions to the workshops that are taking place this week. So uh, that's where I got my number five from. There are five of them this week, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, that's right. Yep. Um, and so if people want to go along to those, um, have you got in, I'm hoping you've got in front of you because I don't, which councils are uh, involved this week? Yeah, so tomorrow the 17th we're um, at the City of Melbourne and then the 20th is the City of Kingston, the 23rd City of Hobson's Bay, the 26th is the City of Port Phillip and then the 1st of October is at Bayside. Um, we'll be doing Geelong and Wyndham early November. So all of there's still opportunities for people to, to join the workshops if they'd like to. Um, if they head to our website, which is tangaroablue.org, down the bottom of the homepage, there's an event calendar and they can click on each of those ones and find out exactly where it's going to be and what time and how to get there. It's really fantastic, as you mentioned before. This is open to everyone. So they're happening at a local level and being hosted by councils, by local councils, but you're looking to have everyone involved from industry, uh, um, government, and I'm assuming state government as well, and community groups. Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is um, this is being funded through the Port Phillip Bay Fund. So the state government is funding it. The local government is hosting it. And we have, in some of the workshops, we have school students coming, teachers coming, as well as local businesses, industry, um, state government departments, and a lot of local community members. So people that may not be affiliated to a group that just want to get involved. And creating these local powerful networks that can work together, that's how we start to shift change at a local level. Fantastic. And yes, if you're out there, if you're part of a school it's good to know that school groups um, can take part as well this week coming up is the last week in the current school term in Victoria so uh, assuming there's still an opportunity uh, for schools to be involved but then um, that Bayside event in October will be uh, at the beginning of term four and then those events in November at Geelong and Wyndham um, well into term four uh, we'll put a link to your um, your website on our Facebook page Heidi um, and people can look from there. Before we let you go, uh, just wanted to give uh, a, a bit of exposure to your new data collection app. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the database that we developed has been online for quite a few years now and we wanted to, you know, keep up to date with um, the emerging technology. So now we have a Australian Marine Debris Initiative data collection app that's either on uh, Android and iPhone and it means that people can go out while they're doing their cleanups and, and log the, the rubbish and the debris that they're collecting. Um, it even has things like a barcode scanner um, and a camera so we can start to record greater detail on brands um, as well as being able to record things that people might not be sure of. So lots and lots of little tools in there and uh, and we hope that everybody really enjoys using it. Every bit of data is evidence and, and that's what we really need to push for change. That's fantastic. It makes it almost like a treasure hunt, I can imagine. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You never know what you're going to find. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And uh, a great way to kind of tap into people's... Uh, there's something about collecting things, I think. That, sure that, is. And particularly for kids too. Kids love yeah. collecting things and what a, what a great opportunity to collect something that is actually going to do some good. 
yep. for the environment. Heidi, we're going to let you go and catch that plane. Uh, all the very best with your workshops in the week coming up. And it's been fantastic speaking with you again. Hopefully we won't leave it quite so long before we do it again. Excellent. No worries at all. Thanks so much for your support. Great. Thanks, Heidi. Chat to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Heidi Taylor there, director from Tangaroa Blue. And we will put a link to their website. It's a pretty simple one, tangaroablue.org, on our Radio Manor Facebook page. We've had a, um, a surf report from, from our own Dr Surf. It's, it's very detailed. It was a text message which said, um, surf's good, two thumbs up. Brilliant. So whether that's <laughs> West Coast, Mornington Peninsula, who knows? Probably, probably the peninsula. Yeah. Since he's a peninsula boy. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple of um, bits of news that I might mention now. One was we mentioned the Australian Marine Conservation Society. Their press release about Adani earlier in the program. They've put out another one this week as well. We tried to get onto them. They didn't have anyone available this week, but I said I would actually at least read from this press release. The um, International Whaling Commission has been meeting this week in Brazil and there was a, a push forward to establish uh, the Southern Whale Sanctuary. And uh, unfortunately and possibly predictably, it didn't get up. There was a three-quarters majority required to establish the South sorry, the South Atlantic Whale Sanctuary. Um, 39 countries voted for it, 25 against three abstentions, which doesn't add up to 89. So I'm not, what hap- not sure what happened to the other 22 countries. But uh, yes, unfortunately that didn't get up. Um, so we'll have to wait another two years, we I will. guess. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so unfortunate news there. But um, yeah, I, I'm pretty keen to talk to someone from the AMCS about this and just to really look at, look forward what's... It's hard to see what's going to happen in two years' time on the horizon, particularly politically, but I guess we we'll <laughs> sure, sure is. It, can't it, see it what's all, happening next senses. week, can we? No, no. <laughs> um, but, but as I mentioned briefly before, in Iceland they have a new Prime Minister um, and it is Katron, Katrin Jakobsdottir. I think, I, I don't know if I've got the pronunciation mm-hmm. correct there or not. It doesn't really matter. But, um, well, it does, of course. It sounds offensive to say it doesn't matter. But, but anyway, yeah, she wants to ban whaling or is exploring it, but there's not a lot of support from the Icelandic people themselves. If she is number one politically in that country, does that give well, some hope? Well, Nerida's shaking her head. I mean, Jump like, on you, know, you, can have, you can have all sorts of prime ministers that want to do things and um, yeah, but, it doesn't um, happen. It depends why she was voted in and I... Mm, when we were there last year. Oh, okay. Saw, so here we go. First hand report. I saw no desire to ban those sorts of things. Mm. Our Icelandic they don't, they don't. They don't add. They don't advertise it heavily outside of the country. I mean, it's not something that you'll find everywhere. But there's there's particular points. So, but they do still well. Yeah. yeah. They do still catch them, and you can go and eat it if you really want to. Yep. Down at the dock. It's important to mention too that often you know there are there are countries that are often held accountable for where things are at with pro-whaling and they're usually Japan, Iceland and Norway as is evident from the press release here from AMCS. But it's also important to mention that 25 countries voted against this and there's a whole bunch of reasons why and we're, we're aware of that but that's 25 countries that we're up against for very complex reasons that are going to continue to vote for pro-whaling and against whale conservation. It's a really difficult one to see how we can move through this. I mean, Iceland's like primary industry is still fishing. It's not overtaken by tourism yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, they eat a lot of lamb. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about in terms of, you know, what you, what would you replace it with? They have a lot of lamb. Right. <laughs> so, so there you go. Give up, give up the whale. Just eat lamb. <laughs> On that note, 
think we might hear some music. Yeah, I, sh- I don't want to go further with that one. And then <laughs> shortly in the studio, we're going to be joined by... Ram and Lewis, who are going to tell us a little bit about dredging and um, how legislation is being assembled at the moment to go before the state parliament. We're going to look at some of the things that have happened in the past and how we might be able to do a bit better in the future. So while we get Ram and Lewis into studio, here's some hoodoo gurus and dig it up. It's 9.35, the show is Radio Marinara, and you're on 3 Triple R. My name's Dr Beach, and um, I've got Bron Burton here in the studio with me. Indeed. <laughs> and we also are very happy to be joined in the studio this morning by two law science students. We have Ram and we have Lewis, who have done a bit of research on dredging and kind of come in to talk to us about it. How are you no, going? Not too bad. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Dr Beach. Uh, it's a complete pleasure. Why dredging? What got you interested in dredging? Um, basically because we really um, just... Sorry. <laughs> sorry, I've been nervous. Can, can, I, can I ask a question before we get into yeah. dredging? So law science, what does that involve? What's, what's your experience of being law science students? Well, so I'm actually majoring in environmental science. So for me that just entails... Uh, looking how, uh, so one half is purely just law, the other half of environmental science is just seeing how, um, so I'm focusing on how uh, we need to conserve the environment, sustainability, issues like that. So eventually I'd like to go into mining law, so combine the two, see where that we go with that one. But um, that's a long-term plan for me. But Lewis is doing a different major to me. Yeah, Yeah. so I'm majoring in biology. Yep. And with that, I actually hope to focus mainly on the law and potentially go into intellectual property-based law. Oh, wow. Wow. Big ambitions. (laughs) Yeah. When I was at uni, I think my ambitions were just, you know... um, To finish that Yeah, get out of there. Getting to the pub and going for a dive. (laughs) 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 I'm so impressed. Oh, I'm a little bit embarrassed. Um, Okay, that's awesome. And so... So how did you... So with the dredging that you've been researching, and that's why you're here to talk to us about that today, was this was this something that you were given or was it an option that you could sort of just choose your own subject? How did it all come about? Uh, we just had a keen interest in it, really. So we were uh, just doing a bit of reading and we're like, oh, uh, it's, a cli- it's a current issue right now. So we've got actually a project happening down in Cryo Bay in Geelong. And it's like, oh, okay, so what, what's the law regarding that? Like, why, what can we do? What can't we do? So we were just looking at that and we had a, a bit of a, uh, a segue where we just kept looking and we're like, ah, oh, it's quite interesting. So and when that, you say you've got a project happening down in Cariah Bay, it's not actually you, is it? Oh, is definitely it? not, <laughs> definitely not. So there is dredging, which is... Yeah, been... yeah. So that's just uh, something that's piqued our interest, really. Yeah. So before we get on to that, let's just, can you just run through us, what is dredging? Yeah, certainly. So I've, I have a kind of a, a naive understanding of of like you know a scoop on the back of a a barge, which is pulling stuff out of the water and you know doing something with it. Yeah, is, so is that a good understanding of it? Oh, um, <laughs> kind of. I'll I'll explain what it actually is. So dredging is the removal of sediment from the bottom of a body of water, and then uh, to allow for vessels to enter into ports uh, for industrial purposes. There are different types of dredging. So we, can, so we can bring stuff in from overseas. Exactly. Yeah. So we can import and export. Yeah. And it often gets a bad rap, but it is a reality that there are there are the way um, I guess industry has been constructed is that we we're kind of stuck with it, aren't we? It's one of those mm. things that we need to do. But there are ways that you can go about doing dredging that minimise the impact to the environment. Exactly. So yep. it is kind of a necessary evil. 
to put it one way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so there are two main types of um, dredging vessels. So the two categories are mechanical and suction. So suction, you have to imagine like a giant vacuum cleaner. So they're attached to ships and as they go through water, they'll sort of suck up the sediment. And then you've got mechanical dredges, which is probably as uh, Dr. Beach was saying, they're sort of, um, you know, they scoop up sediment and sort of move it elsewhere, usually onto the ship. So kind of like something I might've had in my sand pit. Exactly, that's a perfect analogy. Right. <laughs> a big digger. Yeah, that's all and, I'm and that stuff that's either sucked up or dug up, is that distributed back into the water column or is that then sort of put onto a barge, taken somewhere else and dumped? Yeah, so there are, there's different sort of ways they do it. So we say with the suction dredge, it all gets sucked up onto the boat and then gets dispersed slightly further down. What, uh, so back into the water column? Back into the water column, unless it's toxic, in which case? Um, so, yeah, toxic uh, sediments actually deposited in uh, the Port of Melbourne dredge material ground. So, that's so, so this is dredging that happens in yeah, Port Phillip Bay? Yeah, so that's within Victoria. Yeah. Uh, so all the toxic contaminants are actually just stored underground in an area of almost 10 kilometres squared. That's just where they keep everything. Uh, but they actually put back the sediment that's non-contaminated back into the water. Uh, we've got a good example of that actually in Port Phillip Bay itself. Uh, so there was a project in 2009. I'm sure we all remember parts of that. Wait, yeah, yeah, the channel deepening project yeah. in 2009. Yep, yeah, yep. so there was a few issues. So that was starting in February uh, 2008. It was almost, uh, it was about a billion dollars almost. And there's a lot of public scrutiny with that one. The reason being because uh, it cost almost uh, 150 million taxpayer money. Yeah. Uh, and then there was some environmental issues which stemmed from the practices that were conducted throughout that project. Well, we did hear quite a lot about the environmental issues from that. I mean, number one was like when they deepened the... So they had to deepen, first of all, all the shipping channels in the bay. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. But down at the entrance, down near the heads, there was... Um, you run us through that. There was a, like tidal movement or something. There, there was some um, sort of sand washed up on the front beach of Portsea and. Yeah, so I'm sure we remember as uh, remember that as that moment being where uh, the front beach lost all its sand. So it was a fair bit of scrutiny from a few well-known people. A few millionaires down there. Yeah, yeah. they're like, <laughs> we're losing our beach. Uh, but what happened was uh, because of the dredging material, uh, the dredging, the uh, the the seabed had deepened and the tidal flow had actually increased. So there was more water going further up in beat on the sand and that was dragging more sand away from the beach. So that caused a huge loss of sand, which was actually found to have been from the dredging that occurred in 09. So that little thing was unintentional. So it wasn't a foreseeable uh, environmental impact that was uh, predicted from the dredging project. So it was just something that happened and they're like, oh, oh, wow. Okay, we didn't, we didn't... Yeah, we didn't think yeah. that would happen. Yeah. yeah, so that just caused a lot of issues to... There um, were other issues associated with yeah. that as well, weren't there? With, the, like, the sediment that was yes. put up into the water column and mm. issues with the sponge gardens, was it, Yes, down there? yes, and sponge gardens and the seagrasses. Uh, so this is a major environmental issue. Uh, so turbidity, that, uh, that's the main issue why it's affecting the environment in a bad way, because there's been a, a lowering of turbidity. Can so, you just explain turbidity for us? Yeah, so that just refers to the clarity of the water. So when you're dredging, uh, the sediment floats up into the water channel. That's uh, changing the level of clarity. 
uh, through that the water gets a bit murky, it's low turbidity and you've got a lot of species which are dependent on light and the seafloor being affected. Is it low low turbidity or high turbidity? Well, high, high, high turbidity is the, the bad thing. The, we, we, sorry, oh, the, yes, yeah, so yeah. We, it, doesn't yeah, let sorry. light in, so yeah, it's gonna. Yeah, high turbidity. That's yeah, what's making it murky. Sorry, yeah, uh, it got mixed up there. But yeah, so because of the high turbidity, you've got seagrasses. Uh, they being plants that depend on the light for photosynthesis. Uh, uh, they're also the primary level of the food chain in the in the marine environment. So if they are unable to regenerate or make food, that's affecting all the other species dependent on them. So that's one uh, one negative effect from dredging. Uh, you've also got filter feeders such as uh, scallops and sea sponges. Uh, they, because of the changed water composition, their pores are getting plog- uh, clogged up. So they're also negatively affected from increased sediment in the water that results from dredging. Uh, so if we actually uh, want to go into uh, something that happened in Port Phillip Bay, uh, in particular Sea Sponge Gardens, uh, prior to the project happening, Port Phillip Bay was quite diverse with um, sea sponge species. Uh, so they did do the appropriate management techniques when they uh, were conducting the dredging, but they only looked at species which were directly involved in the dredging project, so they didn't see species that weren't um, you know, weren't near the channel deepening area. Uh, so actually uh, a fair few species became endangered because of that. They didn't see how it would affect the greater marine ecosystem. So that's just, you know, raised a few doubts and questions about the practices. Now, I'm just conscious of time and we were keen to hear from you about some new legislation that um, we understand is going to be going to Victorian Parliament at some stage in the near future. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What are the proposed changes? Yeah, so um, DELP, uh, which is the uh, de- uh, Department of Environmental Land and Water Pl- uh, Planning, have put forward seven sort of um, categories of what they believe that we can improve on to address weaknesses in the current practices. The three major ones that stood out to me in particular are community outreach, using dredging as a resource rather than just sort of placing it somewhere and forgetting about the spoils, and the final one being having it adaptable to climate change. So out of those, like using it as a resource, resource can you just sort of um, take us through what, what that means? Yeah, so they're actually going to be taking a page out of uh, Queensland's system. Oh, yeah. So what they did there is up in the port of Brisbane... Oh, lovely. <laughs> Following Queensland, are we? Yeah. <laughs> so up in the port of Brisbane, they actually used the um, dredge spoil to create a seawall to naturally sort of artificially change tidal flow to assist with vessels entering in and out. The reason they couldn't do that in Melbourne, though, was because the differences and the uniqueness of the sediment up there. So up in the port of Brisbane, it was a lot more clay-like, whereas here it's a lot more silty. So they weren't able to construct that. So they're hoping to come up with new ideas similar to as they did in Brisbane to sort of naturally uh, change tidal flows, etc. And you also mentioned adapting to climate change. I mean, how can we use... How is dredging going to be important as we face climate change and increasing sea level rise? So it might seem a bit odd to say why would we need to continue dredging if sea levels were to rise, but we're sort of ignoring the fact that it could lead to erosion. So as sea levels rise, it's going to lead to more erosion off the cliffs, putting more sediment in the water. Oh, yeah, right. And um, similarly, if climate change does occur... There's also going to be more storms, which will, could potentially lead to further erosion again, leading to an increased level in the seabed. So what they're actually planning on doing is moving practices away from where 
erosion could occur near cliffs to bring them sort of a bit more into the ocean slash into more of the centre of the bay. That way they can mitigate damages to the cliff and stop erosion. Okay. Lots to think about. Yeah, there is lots to think about. And before we leave this topic, I kind of wonder also about when, when you're going in to dredge somewhere, presumably the companies that do the dredging have to test the sediment that they're going to dredge up off the bottom of the, the sea floor. And if something is toxic, what happens to that as opposed to sediment which is not toxic? So, yeah, the toxic sediment's actually stored underground in the Port uh, port of Melbourne dredge material ground. So that's just where they store that for almost 30 years just so uh, it's uh, then covered over with more sediment, really. And when the, the, the channel, well, in 2009, when the, the channels in Port Phillip Bay were, were dredged all the way, so not only the entrance but up towards the Hobson's Bay as well and near the, the port entrance as stuff comes out from the Yarra, is, it, what, is that more toxic, the material that's coming so up near Westgate Bridge and near the docks? Is the sediment there loaded with more nasties than it might be down near the entrance, for example? You'd say it is because that's where a lot of industry is. Well, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so there's a fair bit of industry in that area. So their offspores, even though it's not meant to go in there, it would eventually, some of it would lead into the water. So there are different practices used depending on yeah. where you are. And so, yeah, they generally up. have to test it before even deciding to dredge in that area. So, yeah. So this legislation that's um, going before Parliament, when is that happening? Um, so that idea put up, sorry, the idea, the, um, the document put towards Lily D'Ambrosio by DELP was created in August. So it would be in the foreseeable future, probably in the next six or so months, I would guess. Okay. All right. So we look forward to seeing what's happening there. Uh, Ram and Lewis, thank you very much for coming in and sharing a few thoughts with us on dredging. And um, yeah, good luck with the rest of your studies. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Bron, just in the last few minutes that we have, I want to tell you about the world's first vegetarian shark. This well, is flexi- so cool. fle- flexitarian, maybe. Okay. Omnivorous. So, sharks, right. you think of sharks hunting being, you know, big carnivores of the deep, top predators, all of that. Well, there's a hammerhead, hammerhead a small type of hammerhead, which is called a bonnet head shark, and it lives in seagrass meadows. Um, off the coast of the Americas. It's been observed consuming invertebrates like squids and stuff like that, but also large amounts of seagrass. And seagrasses, as you know, flowering plants which live in the ocean, very, very important for all sorts of ecosystem services. People have thought, well, are they, re- are they just having a munch or are they processing these carbohydrates, the, the food that they get from the, well, the material they get from the seagrasses? And indeed, yes, Samantha Lee uh, from the University of California, Irvine, her colleagues, um, they've captured so unfortunately they had to put five of these in um, tanks for a little while and they fed them seagrass which was laced with just a tiny amount of radioactivity carbon 13 and carbon 13 they can then trace through all the way through the digestive system and they were able to show that yes indeed they were processing all of this so they were taking the nutrients from the seagrass so they were indeed eating it and then interestingly they also found a whole bunch of enzymes which are in the guts of these sharks which are there to process plant food. So enzymes very similar to what you might find in the guts of a cow. And these are there to deal with the cellulose, those fibres that you get around all plants. And, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. So we now have a, um, a shark that flexes with its, um, with its so diet. That's so cool. Yeah. Now, is there any commentary on whether the sharks are deliberately eating the plant matter or is it something that is just happening accidentally because they're looking for um no they, they do munch on it they have they eat they actually target it. yeah something wow. like a dugong for okay. example so we're very aware of dugongs eating that but off the americas 
this little little type of hammerhead shark is um that's oh, a hammerhead right yeah it's a little hammerhead it's called a bonnethead shark sphena tubula that's so cool and hammerheads yeah. and you're absolutely right and particularly hammerheads have always i've always thought that they were known them to be um very carnivorous uh, as in carnivorous. <laughs> they were always the ones in like the, in, the, in the movies where someone would go into the water, you know, like in particularly like 50s, 60s movies, they'd be like the hammerhead. Yeah. Like, wow. Well, even as a diver, when I was diving a lot, you know, a number of years ago, they were one of the, the sharks that, you know, we, we all kind of collectively knew to watch out for um, just to be wary, aware of them. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you see Port Jackson swimming around on the bottom and, you know, Yep, cute Port Jackson. You see hammerhead, and there's something about there's something that kind of you know pings on the radar. But um, yeah, they're fascinating. It is. So this was published, um, yes, yeah, I said I by like Samantha Lee in um, the Proceedings of the Royal Society Series B. Good on you. Last month. Thanks, Dr. Beach. That's a pleasure. That's our end of our Radio Marinara program for today. Ping, we've gone right over to 10 o'clock. Thanks so much to our guests, Heidi Taylor from Tangaroa Blue, uh, Lewis and Ram, uh, the Marine. Uh, sorry. The Law Science students. Thank you. Um, and uh, and to you, Dr Beach, thank you. And thank you, Nerida, our panel beater for today. And thank you, Kent, very much for um, for fielding our calls. Kent's about to come straight into studio and uh, be on air, I believe, with radiotherapy. They'll take you through to 11 when Einstein and Gogo will take you through till 12. Have a wonderful Sunday on our program next week. Dr Beach, you're back. I am. Ace. And we've got a couple more students too, Callum and... Callum and um, Africa. Africa. They're going to be talking about best practice coastal development, which will be cool. And Terry, I think, is joining us to talk about diving in South Africa. So brilliant. All right, we'll catch you next week. Have a great Sunday. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.